Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 6, Al-Qadizia. Last time, I covered the decisive Battle of Yarmouk, which was a major victory for the Rashidun Caliphate. Since the climax in the war between the Rashidun Caliphate and Byzantine Empire has passed, this time I'm going to shift east. Although Khalid ibn al-Walid no longer commanded the Muslim armies in Persia, the Rashidun Caliphate's war against the Sassanid Empire continued. First, a brief refresher. In episode 4, I discussed Khalid ibn al-Walid's campaigns against the Sassanids, in which the Rashidun Caliphate annexed all territories up to the Euphrates River. Then, in 634, Khalid was appointed commander of the Muslim armies in Syria and traveled west. That is where our story begins today. After Khalid's departure, Muthana ibn Haritha became commander of the Muslim armies in Iraq. He commanded a mere 9,000 men, a force that was way too small to defend all recently conquered territory. Even worse, as Khalid had moved north up the Euphrates, he left the region around Ubala, one of his first objectives, abandoned. The Sassanids would certainly take the offensive against the reduced Muslim presence. Muthana decided to attempt to frighten the Persians into remaining on the defensive by increasing the scale and violence of his raids. But the Sassanids soon learned that their most formidable opponent, Khalid ibn al-Walid, was gone. A 10,000-strong army was placed under Hormuz, who was different from the Hormuz who was slain at the Battle of Chains, with the objective of conquering Kira. Hardly had Hormuz's army left Tesiphon when Muslim scouts informed Muthana of the Sassanid developments. Muthana deployed an 8,000-strong army a mile away from the ancient city of Babylon, with the hilla branch of the Euphrates protecting his left flank. The following day, Hormuz arrived. Particularly noteworthy is the fact that Hormuz brought one elephant that he placed in his army's center. The beast certainly would have been a formidable sight to the Muslims. The Battle of Babylon occurred in late June or early July 634. We don't have many details about this battle, but after intense combat, two Muslim warriors were able to blind the enemy elephant using javelins, stirring the elephant into a rage. Unable to see where it was going, the elephant rushed madly around the battlefield, scattering troops. Luckily, the elephant did more damage to the Sassanids than the Muslims, allowing Muthana to increase the pressure along the entire front. The Sassanids collapsed and were forced to retreat back to Tesiphon. The Muslim victory in the Battle of Babylon proved that although Muthana did not achieve the same military prowess as Khalid, he was certainly a force to be reckoned with. Still, Muthana needed help. In mid-August 634, about the same time Abu Bakr died, Muthana traveled to Medina to seek reinforcements. After the Muslims in Medina took the oath of allegiance to the new caliph, Umar, Umar spoke about Muthana's plight. However, there were no volunteers. Given the history of Persian influence in the Arab world, few Muslims were willing to fight against the mighty Sassanids. The next day, Umar assembled the masses, but it was Muthana who spoke. Muthana reminded the Muslims of previous victories in Iraq and of the vast wealth the region contained. This time, the response was better. One of the volunteers, a young man named Abu Ubaid, was placed in command over all Muslims in Iraq, even over the experienced Muthana. Abu Ubaid was inexperienced, so Umar appointed two veterans of the Battle of Badr as Abu Ubaid's advisors. Umar mustered about 1,000 reinforcements in Medina and sent them to Iraq. The Sassanids, meanwhile, gained an extremely capable general, Rostam. Rostam's first move was to eject the Muslims from the Suad, a region between the Tigris and Euphrates. Rostam sent letters to the mayors of all the Suad's towns, urging them to fight for the Sassanids. Rostam formed three small armies, placing Narsa and Jaban in command of the other two. 
Narsa was sent to Kaskar to prop up Persian authority there, while Javan operated across the Euphrates against Hirah. A third force would be commanded by Rustam. All of these forces were intended to weaken or disperse the Muslims, while a fourth force under Bahman would deliver the fatal blow. When Muthana returned to Hirah, he realized that the Sassanids were on the offensive. Borrowing Khalid's tactics, Muthana abandoned Hirah and retreated to Kafan, which was near the desert, in order to tempt Jaban into attacking him. As Abu Ubaid traveled north, he acquired members of northern Arabian tribes, augmenting his forces to 4,000. Abu Ubaid joined Muthana at Kafan in early October 634, just as Jaban neared Namarik, a city near Kufa. After spending a week at Kafan, Abu Ubaid moved forward with 12,000 warriors. Abu Ubaid placed Muthana in charge of the cavalry. We don't have many details about the subsequent battle, but the Battle of Namarik was another Muslim victory. Jaban was captured but was released after he paid ransom. A short while later, the Muslims scored another victory against Narsa in the Battle of Kaskar. Then, Abu Ubaid led the return march to Hirah. However, Abu Ubaid's desire to push his men left his army exhausted. Two weeks later, as the Muslims approached the Euphrates, they discovered a third Persian army under a general named Jalanus. The Muslims defeated this force as well, but Jalanus escaped with most of his troops. Abu Ubaid proceeded to recapture Hirah. Rustam must have expected these developments, since despite the fact that the Muslims just won three straight victories, they were weakened. So Rustam ordered Bahman to Hirah. The strength of Bahman's army is not recorded, but we do know that Bahman was encamped at a place called Kus Natif, located on the east bank of the Euphrates. Abu Ubaid and 9,000 men moved to a village named Marauha, located on the west bank. On the following day, Bahman sent an emissary to Abu Ubaid with a message, quote, Either you cross over to our side, and we shall let you, or we shall cross over to your side, and you must let us, end quote. Abu Ubaid was advised not to cross. After all, if the Sassanids crossed, the river would have acted as an obstacle to the Sassanid retreat. But the overconfident Abu Ubaid boldly declared that the Muslims would cross. Muthana objected, but Abu Ubaid responded by removing him from command of the cavalry. Bahman drew back his army in order to allow the Muslims to cross, initiating the Battle of the Bridge, which took place in late November 634. The battle began when Abu Ubaid ordered his army forward, but his horses became spooked by Bahman's elephants. Bahman had ordered bells to be tied around the elephants' necks, and the ringing of those bells made the Persian elephants even more fearsome. The Muslim cavalry bolted, but during this confusion, the Muslim infantry moved up and engaged in an archery duel with the Sassanids, which the Sassanids won, thanks to their longer-ranged bows. Seeing that his horses were hectic, Abu Ubaid ordered his cavalry to dismount and attack on foot. By now, the Muslims had learned how to deal with the elephants. Abu Ubaid cut off an elephant's trunk, but the elephant responded by crushing Abu Ubaid with its leg. Abu Ubaid's uncle, Al-Hakam, and his son, Jabir, took command, but they were both killed. The Muslims began to lose heart and fell back to the bridge. Unfortunately, one tribesman who intended to fight to the death cut the ropes supporting the bridge, severing the Muslims' only means of escape. Some Muslims, even those who were unable to swim, plunged into the river. Command passed Muthana, who led a successful rearguard action that bought enough time to allow the Muslims to repair the bridge. The bridge crossing resumed, this time in an orderly fashion. Muthana was the last man to cross. Afterwards, the Muslims hastily disassembled the bridge. The Battle of the Bridge was the first serious defeat for the Muslims. Of the 9,000 Muslims who fought, 4,000 were killed. 
the Sassanids lost 6,000. Muthana was forced to withdraw from Hurrah and rest and rebuild at Uleus. Strangely, Bahman did not pursue the crippled Muslims. Being informed of an uprising against Rostam and Tessaphon, Bahman turned back. In January 635, Jaban, however, made for Uleis, but Muthana sprang on the Sassanids and defeated them, killing Jaban. Even better, Umar sent reinforcements, many of them veterans of the Ritter Wars. Yet again, this caused panic in the Sassanid court. In April 635, a general named Miran was placed in command of 12,000 men. Miran was charged with driving the Muslims out of Hurrah. The two armies met at Nakhela on the banks of the Bue River. Muthana's strength was now replenished to 8,000 men, mostly thanks to large numbers of Christian Arabs that were now willing to help the Muslims rather than the Sassanids. As the two armies settled in their respective camps, located on opposite sides of the Bue River, Miran invited the Muslims to cross, but Muthana, remembering Abu Ubaid's blunder, refused. So instead, Miran crossed. Initially, the Persians had the upper hand, but they soon grew tired. Muthana was pushing back Miran's center, while his wings were pinning the Sassanids in place. In a desperate attempt to hold the line, Miran rushed forward, but was killed. At last, Persian resistance broke, and Muthana was able to capture the bridge, but not before a few Persians escaped. The Persians scattered and suffered additional casualties from pursuing Muslim cavalry. Muthana had avenged his army's loss in the Battle of the Bridge, with a victory in the Battle of Buwayb. Once again, the Muslims were able to raid across the Euphrates. For the rest of 635, the Muslims consolidated their positions in southern Iraq. But Muthana would be forced to pull back to the edge of the desert, abandoning Hirah. The Muslims received news that Rustam and Bahman were assembling an army larger than any previous army. It would take months for the Persian army to gather, but due to the efficient Sassanid bureaucracy, it did so quickly. Umar was forced to send former apostates, whose loyalty was probably questionable, to Iraq. Umar even sent a new commander, Saad ibn Abi Waqqas, one of the earliest converts to Islam and member of the Blessed Ten. In April or May 636, Saad departed with 4,000 men. Along the way, vast numbers of northern Arabian tribesmen, including Tuleha, joined Saad. Before Saad and Muthana linked up, Muthana died. The wounds Muthana sustained during the Battle of the Bridge proved fatal. Saad completed his journey to Iraq in July 636, and the combined Muslim forces numbered 27,000 men. Umar continued to take an active role in the army's conduct, despite the fact that he was not with them. Umar ordered Saad to march to a place called al qadizia and stay there. As I covered last time, in August 636, the Muslims scored a decisive victory in the Battle of Yarmouk. That success allowed Abu Ubaidah to send 1,700 men to Saad, bringing the strength of Saad's army to 29,000 men. After establishing camps and setting defenses, Saad conducted raids into the Suad. Saad maintained correspondence with Umar, informing him of the tactical and geographical situation. Meanwhile, the large Sassanid army was fully assembled and placed under the command of Rostam, Consisting of Persians, Turks, Kurds, Armenians, and Christian Arabs, it harnessed the vast military resources across the empire. The army was located at Sabat, three miles west of Tessifan. Smaller forces were sent into the Suad in order to counter the Muslim raids, and the Muslims fled their outposts in response. Still, the Sassanids awaited the Muslims' next move. Saad sent 12 envoys to the court of Yazdegerd, offering the usual, Islam, Jizya, or the sword. Yazdegerd was surprised by the arrival of these envoys. 
However, he responded by ordering his servants to place a basket full of dirt on the head of the lead envoy, which he intended as an insult. However, the Arabs saw this as their enemy voluntarily surrendering their territory, so they traveled back to Al-Qadizia with joy. Having learned that from reports, Yasajard ordered the basket to be retrieved. Rostam and a few horsemen tried to catch up to the Muslim envoys, but it was too late. The Muslims already returned to their camp. The basket filled with earth was seen by the Muslims as a positive omen. Yasajard had chosen the sword. In order to force the Sassanids into a decisive battle, Saad increased the frequency and range of his raids. Some of these raids resulted in minor skirmishes with Persian troops, but the more mobile Muslim advance columns were not seriously damaged. Saad's strategy achieved the intended effect. Persian nobles with land holdings in the Suad pressured Yasajar to send Rostam against the Muslims. Rostam, however, advocated patience. He sent a request to Yasajar to accept his resignation, but that request was turned down. And so, in July 636, Rostam cautiously marched to Al-Qadisiyah. For the next three weeks, full-scale confrontations did not occur, as both sides were making battle preparations. In a last attempt to avoid battle, Rostam sent a messenger to Saad asking him to send an emissary to initiate negotiations. Each day, Saad sent a different envoy, but negotiations fell through as the Muslim envoy simply offered Islam, Jizya, or the sword, much to Rostam's annoyance. Finally, Rostam crossed the Atik River, making a battle inevitable. The battle was fought on the plains of Al-Qadizia. These plains were flanked by the Atik River to the east and the Trench of Sabur to the west. The trench was originally intended to block Arab raiders before the advent of Islam, but by now, the trench had fallen into a state of disrepair. There were lakes located both north and south of Al-Qadisiyah. Rustam ordered his engineers to construct a dam over the Atik River. The dam was located a few miles south from the bridge, so Rustam effectively shifted the battlefield a bit south. Rustam preferred a dam over a bridge because it would give his army a wider crossing. The dam was largely composed of wood, earth, and cloth. Saad understood the need for the Persians to cross, so he ordered the Muslims not to interfere. Rostam deployed his army with five corps located in the front and one corps in reserve. Rostam commanded the Sassanid center. The Sassanid center left was commanded by Birzan, the center right was commanded by Jalanus, the left wing was commanded by Muran, the right wing was commanded by Hormuzan, and the reserve was commanded by Bahman. Rostam sent a small cavalry detachment to guard the bridge in order to prevent the Muslims from crossing and outflanking them. Along with the soldiers, a Persian communication system to testify was established. Men particularly known for their loud voices were placed on a line from the battlefield to testify. With 60,000 men and 33 war elephants, this was the best of the Sassanid military. The Sassanids carried one of their most famous objects with them, the Dirafash Ikavian, the Great Sassanid Standard. The Muslim army was organized on the basis of tribes and clans, and they deployed a mile away from the Sassanids. The Muslim formation mirrored that of the Sassanids, except for the fact that their lines were thinner. While the Sassanid lines had a depth of 13 ranks, the Muslim lines had a depth of only 3 ranks. The Muslim center-left was commanded by Asim ibn Amr, the center-right was commanded by Zura ibn al-Hawiya, the left wing was commanded by Shurabil ibn As-Samt, the right wing was commanded by Abdullah ibn al-Mutim, and the reserve was commanded by Salman ibn Rabia. Saad himself commanded the Muslim center, though Hamal ibn Malik commanded the infantry in this section. The Muslim army consisted of 30,000 men, including groups of Persians and Christian Arabs who switched sides. Unfortunately, Saad was immobilized by boils on his backside, which prevented him from mounting his horse. 
Therefore, he set up his headquarters in the castle of Uzeib and managed the battle from afar. Saad appointed a deputy, Khalid ibn Urfuta, to execute Saad's orders. The Battle of al began on November 15, 636, with a series of duels, in which the Muslims won most of them. Rostam grew tired of this and ordered an attack. He intended to defeat the Muslim wings first, and then converge on the Muslim center. The Sassanid attack began with heavy showers of arrows. The Persian bows had longer ranges, and their arrows were heavier. When the Muslims responded, the Persians laughed at the Muslim arrows, chanting, Spindles! Spindles! After a little while, Rustam ordered an attack on the Muslim right, while keeping the rest of the Muslim front occupied by his archers. The Sassanid elephants spearheaded this attack. On the Muslim right, the infantry was thrown into confusion and began to fall back. Not wanting to commit his reserve this early, Saad ordered portions of his center and center right to attack the Persians. They were successful in driving the Persians back. With his initial attacks repulsed, Rostam launched his reserve against the Muslim center in order to pin it in place, and then committed the Persian right and right center in an attempt to break through the Muslim left. Once again, the elephants led the charge. The Muslim horsemen fell back. Saad wrote to Asim ibn Amr, who is also the leader of the Bani Tamim tribe, to do something about the elephants. Their strategy was to first pick off the Persians on the elephants' backs with arrows, and then to cut the girths of the howdahs, and this proved to be highly successful. The warriors on the Muslim left struck the elephants in one of their most sensitive areas, their trunks, causing the Persian elephants to seek refuge behind their main lines. All the Sassanid attacks were repulsed by the late afternoon, and Saad immediately tried to exploit the Persian setback by launching an attack along the entire front, hoping to press the Persians to the bank of the Atik River. By sunset, the Muslims created a few gaps in the Sassanid lines and pressed through them. One such gap was in the Sassanid center, and it dangerously exposed the Sassanid high command. A few Muslim warriors charged through the gap and got very near to Rostam, but the Sassanid general himself entered the fray and succeeded in repelling the charge. The two armies broke contact as dusk approached. The events of the first day of battle were so confusing and disorderly that the day would be remembered as the Day of Disorder. Both armies formed up for battle after sunrise on the second day. Saad ordered that the dead be evacuated and buried, and a search be conducted to find wounded or missing soldiers. During the course of the second day, reinforcements arrived from Syria, inspiring the day's nickname, the Day of Succor. No movements were made until midday, when Saad ordered his champions to engage in duels like he did the day before. While the two sides were engaging in duels, an advance guard from Syria led by Kaka ibn Amr, the brother of Asim ibn Amr, arrived on the battlefield. Despite just finishing an extremely long journey, Kaka challenged a rival Sassanid commander to a duel. Bahman accepted the challenge, but Kaka killed him in combat. Birazan stepped forward to duel with Kaka, but Kaka killed him too. The loss of these commanders must have deeply demoralized the Sassanids. Saad then gave the order for a general attack. The Persians held the line and were able to repulse all Muslim attacks. After a couple hours of fighting, the Muslims pulled back to their original positions, giving each side a bit of respite. During this break, Kaka employed a clever trick. He ordered his men to construct structures made of wood and cloth that were placed firmly on his camel's backs. His camel's faces were both covered and distorted, making his camels appear like monsters. These camels were ridden through the Muslim lines and directed at the enemy cavalry. The Sassanid soldiers were not fooled, but the horses freaked out. Many horses standing in the path of the camels bolted, knocking down Sassanid infantry in their way, and did not stop until they reached the Atik River. 
With the Persians in confusion, Saad launched another attack. The Muslim cavalry headed straight towards the Persian gaps left by their departing cavalry. Kaka and his men made a determined thrust towards Rostam, but yet again, Rostam personally repulsed the Muslims. Fighting continued well into the night. Slowly and steadily, the Muslims were forced out of the Persian positions. The Muslims were too exhausted for combat to continue, so the second day's fighting concluded. Both sides received little sleep that night. Soon after midnight, however, Kaka met 600 men and divided them into groups of 100. They were instructed to approach the battlefield after sunrise in different groups in order to present the illusion that large numbers of Muslim reinforcements were continuously arriving. With these arrangements in place, Kaka arrived back in al qadizia shortly after sunrise. Rustam decided to change his strategy. On the third day of battle, Rustam would seize the initiative and throw his elephants into the action once more. The elephants and their equipment had been refitted for battle. In order to protect the elephants, the Persians deployed rings of infantry around them, and the infantry themselves were protected by the cavalry placed in front of them. The arrival of the elephants shocked the Muslims, who thought they had finished off the beasts. Due to the position of the elephants, Kaka's trick with the camels would no longer work. At mid-morning, Rustam launched his attack, starting with a volley of arrows that was extremely accurate. The Muslims sustained significant losses before the Persian lines moved forward. At first, the elephants moved slowly, but before the two lines met, the Sassanid infantry moved aside and the elephants wreaked havoc among the Muslims. Not only did the Muslims have to contend with the elephants, but the Sassanid infantry and cavalry as well. The Muslims were pushed back, and Rustam intended to end the battle by killing Saad. A Persian cavalry detachment managed to break through every Muslim line and surround the castle of Uzayb. However, a Muslim cavalry group came to Saad's rescue just before the Sassanids began their assault. By midday, both Kaka's men and a force commanded by Hashim bin Utpa bin Abi Waqis, Saad's nephew, arrived on the battlefield. With their forces augmented, the Muslims held the line. The Muslims figured out how to deal with the elephants, by blinding them and severing their trunks. Suffering from immense pain, the elephants screamed, turned around, and charged directly into the Persian ranks, heading for the Atik River. Many of them plunged into the river, and none of them remained on the west bank. To exploit his advantage, Saad ordered a general attack, but the Persians would not move. The two armies fought until the early afternoon, after which they broke contact. The third day of battle would be remembered as the Day of Hardship, as the Muslims suffered a lot on this day. Battle resumed that night, as it fit Saad's strategy of grinding the Persians into the dust. However, the results of the so-called Night of Snarls were inconclusive. At sunrise the next day, fighting ceased until midday, when Kaka launched an attack against the Sassanid center. Meanwhile, both the Muslim right and left launched attacks against their Sassanid counterparts. By noon, Kaka pierced the Sassanid center, and then came a dust storm blowing east against the Persians. The storm was so severe that it plucked Rustam's tent and discarded it into the Atik River. No longer sheltered, Rustam fled for his life, but he was discovered hiding by his mule, chased, and killed by a Muslim soldier. As the storm passed, the Sassanid army was unaware that it had lost its main commander, and the Sassanids were already close to breaking. In the early afternoon, the Muslims launched another determined attack. The Persian front was torn to pieces, starting with its center. The Sassanid soldiers arrived at the bank of the Atik River. Some lucky ones managed to cross the dam and make it swiftly to the other side. Yet most either were slain by the Muslims or attempted to swim. Weighed down by their weapons and armor, most who attempted to swim drowned. Jalanist, noticing Rustam's absence, took command of a rearguard that successfully repelled all Muslim attacks, 
allowing a few Persian units to orderly retreat. Jalinus and his men were the last to cross the dam, and after they did so, they destroyed it. Still, the bridge existed. Muslim cavalry pursued Jalinus and his men as they fled, and Jalinus was slain in a duel. The Battle of al qadizia was another decisive victory for the Muslims. According to Muslim sources, the Rashidun Caliphate lost 6,000 soldiers, while the Sassanids lost 40,000. And it wasn't just the casualties that devastated the Sassanid Empire. The Sassanids lost a number of their top generals and vast quantities of booty, including the dirafsh i Kavian in particular. In short, the Battle of al qadizia was a turning point in the war between the Rashidun Caliphate and the Sassanid Empire. Two weeks after the conclusion of the Battle of al qadizia Saad led an army of 20,000 men, which he divided into fifths towards his new goal, Tessiphon, the capital of the Sassanid Empire. Many of his men were now using captured Persian horses and weapons. The Battle of al qadizia had not yet ended when Yasajar sent reinforcements under Nakhir Jan. When Nakhir Jan received reports of the disaster at al qadizia he halted and awaited further orders. There was no way to prevent the Muslims from reaching Tessiphon, so the Sassanid strategy was to delay the Muslim advance as long as possible. The first delaying action would occur at Burz, located a few miles south of Babylon. Busbura, the mayor of Burz, was given a small force to defend his city. One of the leaders of the five Muslim forces, Zarah ibn al-Hawiyah, contacted the Sassanid force. Zarah engaged Busbura in a duel in which Busbura was wounded, but the mayor would later die from his wounds. A Sassanid officer then successfully negotiated peace with Zurrah, and it was from this officer that Zurrah learned of Sassanid troop movements. By the middle of December 636, the Persians had strongly entrenched positions at Babylon. In late December, Zurrah marched forward to begin the Second Battle of Babylon. We don't have the details about this battle, but it was another Muslim victory. As the Sassanids withdrew, they had to fight a series of rearguard actions, first at Zurrah, then at Kusa, 10 miles west of Tessiphon. In January 637, Zura arrived at Sabat, 4 miles west of Tessiphon, where the mayor submitted to the Muslims. There was now no opposition between the Muslims and Tessiphon. Tessiphon was actually seven cities divided by the Tigris River, and for this reason, the Arabs called Tessiphon al-Mada'in, meaning the cities. As Zura's advance guard approached the western part of Tessiphon, known as Bahurasir, Persian catapults hurled large stones into their midst. The Muslims quickly pulled out of range. It became clear that if the Muslims wanted Tessiphon, they would have to fight for it, but it would be no easy task. The Sassanids had dug a defensive trench around Bahurasir. Over the next few days, Saad deployed his men all around the perimeter of Bahurasir. The trench could not be crossed, so Saad decided to starve the city into submission. In order to establish Muslim authority and gather supplies for his army, Saad turned to subjugating the neighboring countryside. Livestock was captured, and Persian farmers were taken as captives of war. However, these captives were released on payment of jizya or conversion to Islam. For the next two months, the citizens of Bahurazir grew weak and tired, and they were reduced to eating cats and dogs. A number of sallies were attempted, but all failed. Even worse was the fact that the Muslims had now built siege equipment that neutralized Persian catapults. In March 637, the Sassanids attempted one last sally. This led to the hardest fighting of the siege, in which Zura was wounded by an arrow, but a counterattack drove the Sassanids back. During a subsequent lull in the fighting, an emissary carried a message from Yasajar, quote, 
The Emperor asks if you would be agreeable to peace on condition that whatever we possess on our side of the Tigris, up to our hills is ours, and whatever you possess on your side of the Tigris, up to your hills is yours. This offer was rejected. That night, the Persian garrison withdrew across the Tigris, destroying all the boats and bridges that linked Bahurasir to the east bank. The following night, the Muslims entered Bahurasir unopposed. Meanwhile, Yazichir, shocked by recent Persian defeats, was busy sending his family and imperial treasure to Holwan in the event that Tessaphon fell. But Yazijerd remained in his palace because the siege was not over yet. Although Yazijerd was unaware of this, Saad had no idea what to do next, but luckily, some Persian defectors showed Saad a ford where they could cross the Tigris without boats. Early next morning, Saad ordered his cavalry to swim across the river and form a bridgehead. Led by Asim ibn Amr, they succeeded, and they captured boats on the east bank, which were used to transport the rest of the Muslim army. By the time the Muslims reached the east bank, the Sassanid generals decided that further resistance was futile and abandoned their capital with the bulk of their army, leaving a rear guard at Nawarwan. The only Sassanid soldiers left in Tessaphon were stationed in the White Palace. Salman the Persian, the first Persian convert to Islam, successfully negotiated the payment of jizya from this regiment, and so, the rest of Tessaphon was surrendered to the Muslims without a major battle. Tessaphon, the capital and most populous city of the Sassanid Empire, was now in Muslim hands. Although Yazdegerd fled to Holwan with most of the imperial treasury, with the capture of Tessaphon, the Muslims acquired more booty than they had ever seen before. Saad sent various columns to deal with Persian stragglers, and one of these columns captured a Persian baggage column containing the heir emperor's crown, court dress, armor, and full imperial regalia. Saad ordered the courtyard of the White Palace converted into a mosque, from which he led a victory prayer. However, both the bulk of the Sassanid army and Yasajerd managed to escape to fight another day, meaning the war against the Sassanid Empire would continue. But for now, I'm going to turn back west and cover the situation in Syria in the aftermath of the Battle of Yarmouk in the next episode. <laughs>